Today we're reading in Ephesians 5:15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, I put my trust in you now, and I thank you for this time of worship. I thank you for drawing near to us. Earlier this morning we prayed, God, we'd like for things to go smooth externally just so it wouldn't distract people from you, but but if you did not grant us that, we prayed, please grant us this one thing. Draw us into your presence this morning, Jesus, because what we need is you. We don't need to play church. We don't need the wisdom of men. We need the presence of Jesus Christ desperately. And Father, I praise you because you granted us this prayer. I thank you for escorting me to your throne this morning. And I pray now, as in Jesus Christ, I look you face to face as it were. I pray now that you would come and help me to speak your word with clarity and humility and boldness, and I pray that you'd come near to all of us and give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. Open our eyes, Lord God, that we might see. And I pray that you would help your people this morning by your word. Glorify your name. Build up your church, I pray, and honor your word as I preach it with as much faithfulness as I can. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of every one of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our God, our Redeemer, our Rock, our Friend. In your great name we pray. Amen. Well, for the past few weeks, as you know, we've been talking about singing and singing in the life of worship because of what Paul said in Ephesians five eighteen through 19, which Joey just read for us. Paul said, And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And one of the things that happens when you're filled with the Spirit is this. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. So we've learned so far that the biblical pattern of worship, the biblical pattern of praise as the Bible draws it out in many locations, is that we see something of the greatness and the goodness and the beauty of God. Our heart rejoices in it. And it causes us to praise Him. Seeing, rejoicing, praising. That is the biblical pattern of praise. And it has a very, very prominent place in the kingdom of God. And therefore it must grow to have a more and more prominent place in our life and in the life of this church as well. Last week I dealt with making a commitment to praising God in song no matter what we're feeling. If we're up, we praise Him. If we're down, we praise Him. We make a commitment. You are worthy to be praised, O God, and I will praise You. I will use these lips to sing Your praise, no matter what I'm facing, no matter what I'm feeling. Last Thursday, Aaron sent me an email in which he quoted John Piper, who in turn quoted a 17th century pastor named Richard Baxter. This quote comes from a book called When the Darkness Will Not Lift, Doing What We Can While We Wait for God and Joy. 
Pastor John writes this, Therefore, it is not folly for a Christian to assume that there is at least a residue of gratitude in his heart when he speaks and sings of God's goodness, even though he feels little or nothing. To this should be added that experience shows that doing the right thing is often the way toward being in the right frame of mind. Hence, Baxter gives this wise counsel to the oppressed Christian. Resolve to spend most of your time in thanksgiving and praising God. If you cannot do it with the joy that you should, yet do it as you can. You have not the power of your comforts, but have you no power of your tongues? Say not that you are unfit for thanksgiving and praise unless you have a praising heart and were the children of God. For every man, good and bad, is bound to praise God and to be thankful for all that he hath received and to do it as well as he can rather than leave it undone. Doing it as you can is the best way to be able to do it better. Thanksgiving stirs up thankfulness in the heart. Aaron, thank you for sending me that quote. That really, really blessed me, and especially those last two sentences where he wrote, doing it as you can is the way to be able to do it better. That's exactly what I was trying to say last week. When you don't feel like praising God, you make a choice to praise God, and eventually, in God's time, here come the affections. Choosing to thank God is the way to stir up thankfulness in your heart for God. So you say, I don't feel thankful. And the Bible would say, thank Him anyway. Thank Him anyway. Because He's worthy of it. He's worthy of thanks, right? Whether we feel like it or not. And in time, in His time and in His way, He will cause affections of thankfulness to rise in our hearts. My spiritual father, Doug Goodnow, used to say to me when I was facing something, especially I was remembering this week, one thing I was dealing with six or eight years ago, and I called him up and just said, Doug, I just don't know what to do. What should I do? And he said, Charlie, as soon as I'm done saying this, I want you to hang up the phone, go into your room, get on your knees, and call God every good name in the book that you can think of. Just set your eyes on Christ. Praise Him. Think about Him. Call Him every name in the book that you can think of. And eventually, your attitude will change. Your perspective will change. Your affections will be inflamed for God. And that's all I was trying to say last week is we got to make a choice to praise Him, and in time our affections will come along. We simply must be a people who resolve to praise God come what may. No matter what we're feeling, no matter what we're facing, we are going to praise God. Just as David said last week in Psalm 108, you may remember, he said, My heart is steadfast, O Lord. That word means to be established or fixed or firm. Kind of like I, I was seeing a lot of poles this week, you know, embedded in concrete. That's the idea David has in mind. The pole of my heart is embedded in the concrete. I will praise you, come what may. And if we're to get along with Christ in this life, we have to make a choice like that. No matter what, Father, no matter what the storm, no matter what comes my way, I'm going to praise you. That leads me to what I want to talk about today, namely how to sing when we suffer or the relationship of suffering to singing. The Bible has a lot to say about singing and the place of singing in the life of worship. I've shared with you, I think a few weeks ago, that I spent about 20 hours looking up every occurrence of the word singing or praising or like terms in the Bible <clears throat> and then reading them in their context, studying them, 
trying to get to understand them. So two full days, 20 hours long, the Bible says a lot about singing, a whole lot. And one thing that really jumps out at you when you study the Bible on its own terms about this subject is that the Bible is not superficial when it talks about singing at all. And what I mean by that is that the Bible does not assume in singing that we always feel like singing or that we're always free from suffering or from pain or from difficulty. In our culture, in a Christian culture especially, there's always this mindset, it seems, that we have to paste on a smile and and pretend like we're happy if we're to be Christians. And the Bible just does not think the way that we think. And so in order to demonstrate this to you this week, I took the first 50 Psalms last, last Thursday, and I just was curious. I wonder how many of the Psalms are born out of suffering and not out of happiness in the moment. And I didn't feel like doing all 150, so I apologize for that. So I said, I'll take 50. I'll take the first 50. And what I discovered is that 19 of the first 50 Psalms were written from the perspective of one whose life was literally in danger. There were people wanting to kill him, or at least to harm him. And he was afraid. He was scared. He was crying out to God. He was pleading to God. This was real life in action, singing out to God, God, help me. You are a fortress. You are a deliverer. You are my rock. And I need you now. Show yourself to be steadfast, God, in my life. Nineteen times out of fifty times. Another six times, the psalmist cries out from the pain of his own sin. So he's just sinned against God, and now he's wallowing in the consequences of his sin. Been there? I've been there. I've done that. Wallowing in the consequences of my sin and crying out to God, God, I've made a mess of things. I've made an absolute mess of things. Help me. Please, help me, God. Deliver me from me. Six Psalms out of the first 50 are like that. Another ten Psalms were written immediately after God delivered a person from suffering. So God has now just done a great work, a great deliverance, and the person's heart is exalting, and he's praising God. When you add all that up, 19 plus 6 plus 10, that's 35 out of the first 50 Psalms are born in a context of suffering. 35 out of 50. That's 70% of the first third of the book of Psalms is born out of suffering. The Bible is not superficial when it comes to singing and suffering. I will grant you that these Psalms could probably be counted a little bit differently, and if you peruse the first 50, you might come up with different numbers. But roughly speaking, we can say that 70% of the first third of the book of Psalms has to do with suffering and singing. The idea that to be Christian is to escape from suffering, in this life at least, is not a biblical idea. The idea that in order to sing to God, you must be free from suffering, free from pain, free from difficulty, is not a biblical idea. It's not. These ideas come, I think, from our culture. We're consumeristic. We're self-centered. And we think that we really do deserve it our way at Burger King or wherever else we are. We think that. I was grieving at myself this week as I went to restaurants and gas stations and things didn't go just exactly how I wanted and to, and to think of what was in my heart demanding better service as though I deserved it. I've bought into American culture and I think I deserve better than I have. And it's not true. It's not true. And so with God, there's something in my heart that says, God, if you're going to come into my life, you better make it better. You better remove me from suffering. 
You better remove me from difficulty. You better take the pain away. Otherwise, what's it worth following you, Jesus? There's a subtle bit of that probably in all of our hearts. Some churches are, are way that way, right? The health and wealth people. That's their whole gospel and it's a false gospel. But what I'm saying is even in a church like this, even in a heart like this pastor's, there's vestiges of this. There's vestiges. And it comes from the culture, not from the Bible. This culture has trained us to think that unless Christianity makes life better for us in terms of comfort, something's wrong with Christianity, not with us. I knew a pastor in Northern California, and the, the slogan that their church went by was, Making the good life better. Making the good life better. They lived in a, the church was situated in a real rich area. People pretty much had everything that they wanted. Either that or they were up in debt to their eyeballs. But they seemed to be in wealth. And so they're selling Christ in that church by telling people, you think you have it good now, come to Christ and He'll make it better. Making the good life better. But what about things like this? What about Jesus, what Jesus said in John 16.33? He promised His disciples something. In the world, you will have tribulation. Not might, will. But be of good cheer or take heart. I have overcome the world. Now I will grant you that Jesus' overall point here is that we can be encouraged in tribulation because He's overcome the world. He's saying to you, His followers, rejoice in tribulation because you will overcome it. And the reason you will overcome it is because I have overcome the world. And if you believe in me, this will not overwhelm you. You will walk through the waters, but they will not drown you. You will walk through the fire, but it will not burn you. You will come through, because I have overcome the world. He's trying to encourage us with these words. Amen? He's trying to strengthen us. But He's not saying you will escape from tribulation. He's not saying that. He's promising you the opposite. Obviously, eventually, in heaven, we will escape tribulation. But for now, for a season, we must endure light and momentary afflictions. And Jesus, one of the things that I love about Him very much, is that He's honest with us. He's honest. In this world, you will face tribulation. But I'll be with you. His words in Luke 9, 23-24. He said, this to a huge crowd. Many of these people had just come to hear Him for the first time. This is how seeker-sensitive Jesus is. If anyone would come after Me, any of you want to follow Me, you big crowd, you think you want Jesus? If you want Me, let Him deny Himself, take up His cross, and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. Now again, the point here that Jesus is trying to make is not to get us to wallow in death. He's trying to show us the path to life. Death is not the point, but death is the path. You see? It's not the point. Overcoming death is the point. But for now, death is the path. If you want life, you must choose to lose your life. If you want to live with Christ, you must choose to take up your cross and die to yourself now. Paul said in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15.26, that Jesus came to this earth to destroy the last enemy, which is death. So let's be clear about something. Death and suffering and pain are enemies of Christ. 
They are not friends. They're enemies. And He came to destroy that enemy. Hallelujah. When someone dies, when a saint dies, we have no need to mourn. None. Because that person lives in Christ. But the way that Christ overcame death and suffering and pain was to embrace those things, right? He came and put them on like a garment and wore them. And now He's saying to His disciples, Follow Me. Trod the path that I trod. And for a short season, in the scope of eternity, a very short season, embrace the tribulations of this life with Me and you will know resurrection life. You will know what it means to overcome. As I said, death is not the point, but death is the path. Jesus did not promise us immediate delivery from suffering, though He did promise us that He would be with us. And I know that all that sounds upside down and completely backwards to our natural way of thinking, right? You would not normally think that if I want to live, i got to die. It's just not the way you would think. I was meditating on this this morning and thinking to myself, who in, the, in their right mind would have saw Jesus going to the hill called Golgotha and saw Him be crucified, look at that and think, Amen, there's the salvation of the world happening right there. Who would think that? You would be crazy to think that. You would be, and I probably would be, with those who were on their knees before Jesus weeping, saying, how could this possibly be? How could this happen? And yet they didn't know that they were witnessing the salvation of the world. And that's how it works. It's all upside down and backwards in our flesh, but in the Spirit it makes perfect sense. Death is not the point, but it is the path. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. One more example from Paul. He said in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1-4, to he was explaining to the Thessalonians why they had sent Timothy to visit them. And here's what he said. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith. And, and why? Why did they want to establish and exhort them? So that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Now, you can probably infer from these words that those who had believed in Christ in the city of Thessalonica were being heavily persecuted for that belief. I don't know for sure, but probably if the pattern was as it was in other cities, they probably were having property confiscated. They probably were being beaten. They were probably being put in prison. And who knows, maybe some of them died. They were suffering for identifying themselves with Christ. And Paul is writing to them to encourage them, not to discourage them. But what he's trying to get them to understand is that the affliction that they're suffering is not in vain. And he's saying to them, this shouldn't surprise you because I warned you beforehand. This is part of the deal. If you want to embrace Christ, you have to embrace His suffering. And that is the path to being included in His resurrection. Here's what he said in Romans 6, 5. said very clearly there. For if we who believe have been united with Him in death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Embracing the suffering of Christ is the way to be included in the resurrection and the eternal glory of Christ. And then Paul said this in Philippians 3, 7 and following. But whatever gain I had, 
I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. In other words, no matter what I've suffered, and Paul suffered some things, it was all worth it because Jesus Christ was surpassingly worthy for him. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Whether he was speaking to the Thessalonians or to the Romans or to the Philippians or whomever else Paul spoke to, his point could not be clearer. To be Christian is to enter into the sufferings of Christ. And how I pray that we'll be clear about that as a people. Because developing that as a disposition of mind will help you tremendously when you suffer. To be Christian is to enter into the sufferings of Christ. And to enter into the sufferings of Christ is to enter into the resurrection of Christ, into the hope of Christ, into the overcoming power of Christ, into eternal life with Christ. Friends, the Bible is straight with us. It's not pulling punches and it's not lying to us. To be Christian is to suffer for a season that later we might be delivered in Christ. Now... Some of you might be wondering what all of this has to do with singing. Because I told you that today we're going to talk about singing and suffering. And here is the point that I've been trying to make as I draw all of this out. One of the reasons that we don't sing when we suffer is because we don't have a biblical view of suffering. We don't have a biblical disposition towards suffering. As I said, we don't expect that we should suffer, so then when we do suffer, we feel dismayed, we feel disappointed, and it's hard to sing to God when you feel like that, right? It's difficult to sing to God when you're confused by Him, and you don't understand Him. And so one thing that will help us sing when we suffer is by developing a biblical mindset about suffering. That's my main point this morning. If we will humble ourselves before the Word of God and see that it promises us suffering that it also promises us that He will be with us, and it promises us that one day we will overcome in Christ. If we can come to see all of that, then we will be able better to sing when we suffer. True Christian joy emerges from discovering the faithfulness of God in suffering, not from escaping from suffering. I pray that you heard that this morning. True Christian joy, lasting Christian joy, emerges from seeing the faithfulness of God in suffering, not from escaping from suffering. The, the impulse in us to get out of difficulty is probably a good thing. It probably helps us survive many times. But as Christians, we need to question that impulse. Because sometimes God is trying to do great things inside of us. If only we will see Him. If only we will trust in Him. I said to someone this week that suffering is, in many times, the only way for us to discover certain aspects of God. Certain parts of who our Father is, very important parts, cannot be discovered unless you suffer. So let me just give you two or three examples. It's one thing to be told that God is a faithful God. 
and even to believe that in your heart. Of course I believe that. But it's a whole other thing, brothers and sisters, to see with your own eyes when you are going through a difficult time that God is faithful and He has not left you. As I said probably four or five weeks ago, it's one thing for God to be faithful. It's another thing to call God my faithful God. He's been faithful for me now. It's one thing to be told that God's love is steadfast and immovable and eternal. But it's another thing in the midst of difficulties to see that those things are true with your own eyes. It's a whole different thing. It's a completely different world. It's one thing to know that God is a refuge and a fortress and an ever-present help in time of trouble. But when you get the phone call that you have cancer... And now God comes into your life and gives you a peace that you cannot understand. Well, that's a different kind of knowledge. It's a different kind of knowledge. And that knowledge can only be gained in suffering. Please remember, the biblical pattern of praise is seeing something of God, rejoicing in what you see, and then singing back to Him. Singing emerges from sight. Praise emerges from sight. It's just how God has wired us. We see something, either with our physical eyes or with the eyes of our hearts. We rejoice in it, we sing. That's how God has wired us. And how shall we be able to put that pattern into practice if God doesn't give us an opportunity to see Him? How will you ever praise Him for His faithfulness if you're not in a situation where you have to depend on His faithfulness? How will that happen? Beloved, please do not begrudge God when He allows you to suffer because the main thing I think He's trying to do is reveal Himself to you. He has not forsaken you. He has not left you. He has not forgotten you. He's trying to reveal certain aspects of Himself to you. So don't begrudge Him. Have faith in Him. And not only is God trying to reveal Himself to you, but also He's trying to develop in you a Christ-like character. There are certain things in our characters that can only develop when we suffer. Probably all of you would agree with that if you've lived long enough to have suffered a little bit. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Faith. How shall we learn to live by faith in God if we're not put in situations where we have to live by faith in God, right? Some of you recently have struggled with unemployment. You are in a prime place of your life to learn what faith is all about. Because you are in a situation where you must trust in God. And I've been there. There have been times, Kim can testify to this, where we literally did not know where our next meal was coming from. Literally. And we had to exercise faith in God. And time and time and time again, God came through. And in His way and in His time, He provided for us. And now we have faith. How shall faith develop if I never have to exercise faith? Right? Hope. Let's talk about hope. How will we know what it means to have true hope in God? Not a superficial, you know, design for church so people think I'm a good Christian kind of hope, but a real, deep, unshakable, abiding hope in God. He's my rock. How will I ever know that if I'm not in situations where I have to know that? Where I literally have nothing left to hope in but God. Everything else around me has fallen. Everything else around me has failed. God is it for me now. You're in a prime place to learn that God is worthy to be hoped in. When Aaron gave a silence a few minutes ago, it just brought tears to my eyes as I was praising God that He's the only thing worth being hoped in. Everything else will fail us eventually, right? 
We hope in other things, and for a season, it seems to work. It seems to work. But eventually, it all crumbles apart, and God's the only thing left. How else will we know that unless He puts us in situations where we have to know that? God, our Father, has good designs for us in suffering, and if we'll learn that lesson well, it will help us tremendously to sing to Him in the midst of suffering. I'm not saying it's just going to save everything, solve everything, I mean, and, and not make you feel any bitterness or pain. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, if you know your Father hasn't forgotten you and that He has good designs, it will help you to praise Him even in the midst of difficulties. This is what allowed James to write what really in our flesh should strike us as an insane kind of sentence. Just a crazy sentence. In our flesh. But in the Spirit it makes perfect sense. James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Tell me if this is your natural reaction to suffering. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Is that how you normally react? I would not raise my hand. I do not normally react that way. This is the wisdom of the Bible, though. Why? Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and, uh, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now that sentence is nonsense to those who don't believe, but to those who believe in Christ, it is perfectly, perfectly sensible. God, our Father, is trustworthy. And when we cannot trace His hand, we can trust His heart. When we don't know what He's up to, we can trust that He's up to something good. God will work all things together for the good of those who are called according to His purposes and who love Him. Amen? And when you can't see that, believe it. Believe it. Because God is a rock. That's the way you have joy in trials. Not by thinking too much about the trials, but by rejoicing in the fact that God is a rock and He has plans to reveal Himself to you and to shape a Christ-like character in you. That's how you can sing when you suffer. To the extent that you see this and receive it in your heart, you will be able to sing. Last Wednesday night at the park, Pastor Kevin used a great illustration, really stuck with me. He took a piece of paper and crumpled it all up, and then he threw it to Robbie Porter, and he said, Here, Robbie, here's a gift for you. It's a crumpled up piece of paper. He said, Robbie, are you happy to have that gift? Aren't you glad that I gave you that gift? And Robbie said, No, I'm not. It's, it's, a, it's a crumpled up piece of paper. Why would I be happy about that? And then slowly but surely, this was set up beforehand, because Robbie knew to start unfolding it. And as he unfolded it, the words were revealed, You have just inherited one billion dollars. So, what seemed to be a worthless piece of trash turned out to be a priceless treasure. And what I'm saying about life in Christ is that it's often like that. There are times when God gives us a crumpled up piece of paper, and if we're going to be really honest about it, the attitude of our heart is, yuck, what's this about? I thought being a Christian was supposed to help. What's this about? This is a, a gift? Gee, thanks. For just being honest here. But if we'll have patience, if we'll have hope, if we'll have faith in Christ, and ask Him, Lord, would you come near to me and help me uncrumple this piece of paper? Friends, we're going to find that there are treasures hidden there. God never gives anything to His children except by design, and His designs are always good. Amen? His designs are always meant 
to reveal himself and to shape our character to be like Christ. When you receive that crumpled up piece of paper, friends, have faith. Have faith. Hang on. Now, I'm aware that that uncrumpling sometimes doesn't happen in 10 seconds or 20 seconds. Sometimes it takes a week, a month, a year, five years. What I'm saying is no matter how long it takes, trust your Father. Because in that crumpled up piece of paper, there are great treasures. I promise you that. In the late summer of 1993, August of 93, it's been 15 years now, our family received the news that my mother had cancer. And uh, only about 13 months later, she succumbed to that and she died. The death of my mom was uh, a very difficult time for me because, as you know, those of you who have faced death, the death itself is never the totality of what you're going through. There's always all kinds of other things related to that death. And for me, what happened when my mother died is that all of the grief from my father's death when I was 11 years old came crashing on me, and I didn't expect that. My dad died when I was 11. I got immersed in the drug culture. I didn't get saved for eight or nine years after he died, and I never dealt with all the junk from his death. And now in my mother's death, all this stuff comes crashing on me. And I was just blown away. And I I just don't know how to tell you how difficult a time that was for me in the fall of 1994. One night in particular, I was I was really not doing well. And Kim said something, and I got really upset at her. It was 100% my fault. Just take it out by my grief on her unnecessarily. And I I took off from the house. I went out onto a golf course in Palm Springs area where I could be alone. No one could see me. No one could hear me. And I yelled at God. And I mean yelled. And I was saying to Him, God, if there's ever going to be a time in my life where I'm going to do something bad enough that You're going to leave me the way that my dad left me, the way that my mother just left me, then why don't we just get it over with right now? Why don't, you just, why don't we just do it now? Get out of my life now if you're ever going to get out of my life. And I'm not proud of the way that I talked to God. I wish I would have responded to Him the way that Horatio Spafford did when he wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. He just lost everything he had. And he sat down and wrote that song. I wish that would have been the response of my soul, but it wasn't. And I'm not proud of the tone that I took with God. It is not a small thing to speak like that to Almighty God. And I'm deeply ashamed that I did that. But that's what I did. That's how bad I was hurting. And so far from condemning me as he rightly could have and maybe even should have, God in his great mercy came to me that night and wrapped himself around me and he whispered something deeply into my soul. I promise you that I'm not lying to you or even exaggerating to you, but that night, one of the few times in my life I would say this, I could physically feel the presence of God around me. I mean, I literally could feel it on my skin, God wrapping Himself around me and whispering into my heart the words of Hebrews 13.5, Charlie, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Friends, God gave me a crumpled up piece of paper and I'm telling you, I hated it. I was not happy. I was not in a good frame of mind, but by His grace, He came near to me and helped me uncrumple it, and there was a great and amazing treasure found there. I'm telling you right now, 
I have such a humble rest and confidence and trust and assurance in God that He will never ever leave me no matter what happens to me in my life. And I would not trade that assurance for all the money in the world. And I mean it. You offer me everything in exchange. And I would say no. A hundred times out of a hundred. I know that my God and Father is faithful to me. And He will rescue me because in the midst of suffering, He revealed Himself to me and He's real to me. And now He is a rock for me. He's not just a rock in a general way. He's my rock. And when we face difficult things, Kim can testify to this, I will often respond with faith saying, God's going to get us through. God's going to help us. Don't you worry, Kim. Don't you worry, Rachel. Don't be too anxious about this. God will help us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. True joy emerges from discovering God in suffering, not from escaping from suffering. And I love God for that. A couple weeks ago, we looked at two verses from Psalm 59. I want to look at those again. Could you turn there, please? 59, 16, and 17. You may remember that the context of these words is that King Saul had sent men to King David's house. And they were lying in ambush around his house and their, their task was to kill David. They were given the task of assassinating David. And they must not have done the best job at being stealth fighters because David knew they were there. And David knew what they had come to do. And so instead of giving himself to anxiety... What he did was he leaned on the God that he knew and had discovered in the past and then trusted and hoped in him for the present situation. Here's what he wrote. But I will sing of your strength, your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. In the past, God, you've always come through for me. You have shown yourself to be a fortress. You have shown yourself to be a refuge. And now he says in verse 17, for the present situation, O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. The reason David was able to sing when his life was literally being threatened. This was not a test. This was the real thing. People wanted to kill him. The reason he was able to sing is because previously in his life, the Lord had allowed him to suffer. And in that suffering, God showed himself to be a refuge and a fortress. And now David knew. He knew it. He didn't have to doubt it. He didn't have to wonder. He didn't have to consult with other people. He knew it. God is a refuge. He will rescue me. He will be my God. Now what would have happened in David's life if earlier in his life, When God allowed suffering to come, maybe some of you remember, David was out in the field and along comes a bear to attack him. What did he do? He fought it and he won. What if in that moment, David would have lacked faith and stiff-armed God and been upset with God for allowing him to enter into a difficult and suffering kind of situation? What would have happened? Well, now when the chips were down, he wouldn't have had the faith to get through. But because he trusted God and did not begrudge God, and he learned the lessons God would have him learn, friends, now he was able to say from the depths of his heart, Oh, my strength, I will sing to you. I will sing to you even when people are outside waiting to kill me. 
And I pray that for us, friends. How can you sing when you suffer? Hoping God. He will show Himself to be sure in your life. In His way, in His time. And when you see that with your own eyes, not just from the lips of a preacher, but with your own eyes, you will be able to sing to Him in suffering. Even if there's pain in the offering. I love that line of that song. We're not being superficial here. There may be pain in the offering, but I will offer it nonetheless. I will sing to you, O oh, my strength. Oh, beloved, as I close, I just want to plead with you one more time. Do not begrudge God suffering. Open your heart to Him. Allow Him to open up your eyes, to open up your ears, and show you what He wants to do. I told Pastor Kevin earlier this week that in some ways, suffering is like a tool of God in, by which He rips your heart open. And now that your heart is open, He can speak truth into a deep place in you. Before you heard the truth, God is faithful. And, it, and you believed it, but it was just kind of on the surface of your heart. Now He's ripped your heart open. And He can get down deep in there. Clean out unbelief and put belief in there. Don't begrudge Him this. He's trying to help you. He's trying to help you. He's like a surgeon that will wound you for your good. That's your Father. If you want to know how to sing when you suffer, have faith in Him. Have hope in Him. Even if it takes a year, five years, ten years, don't give up. Do not give up. Your Father will not leave you. He will not forsake you. I want to say just about two minutes of things about Proverbs 25.20. This is an important little addendum to the sermon. Solomon wrote, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Now some of you may know what happens when you pour vinegar on soda. I do not know. I have no clue. But I do know what happens when you take someone's coat off when it's ten below zero. It's not a good thing to do. And I pray that any of you that are here this morning that are suffering, I pray to God that you have not heard what I said as though I came and took your coat off on a very cold day. And as though you weren't already suffering enough, I've now exposed you to more elements and you're going to hurt even more. I pray to God you will not hear me in that way because He is my witness. That is not my design. I was trying and I am trying now to lift your burden by lifting your eyes up to Christ. I, I am, as it were, trying to come near to you and put my finger underneath your chin and lift it up to Christ and say, look to Him. He's great, and He's greater than what you're suffering. Hope in Him, believe in Him, trust in Him. He will get you through. He will become a fortress for you, a help for you, a mighty God for you, in due time and in His way. And I pray to God that you have heard me speak in that way. And I pray to God for the day when these things will be true of you, and you'll be able to stand in front of a people and have tears in your eyes and passion in your heart and songs on your lips that say, God is good and He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. Amen. Let's pray. My God, I feel speechless in a sense before You. Right now, I am so moved by Your authentic presence in our lives in the most difficult times of our lives. And I love You for it, Father. I love You that You're not a fair-weather God, but You are with us in all seasons. I love You because You tell us the truth. You will have tribulation. 
And I love you because you make great promises to us. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. I love you for that, Father. And I pray right now for anyone in this room who is suffering and feeling the bitter pain of difficulties. Oh God, please draw near to them right now, right this very moment, by the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Draw near to them, I pray. Minister to them. Strengthen them. Give hope to them. Wrap your body around them, I pray. Father, let them know that you are with them. Oh, how I pray for that. When I benedict the people and dismiss us, how I pray that the body will minister to the body today. How I pray that anyone who needs to talk about what they're going through would find someone to talk to, find a listening ear. And how I pray that we would be prepared to minister to one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, lift up one another by the Word, by the Spirit. Oh God, please make the most of this sermon now that it's over. Please bear fruit in us, I pray, for the glory of your name and the good of your people, I pray these things. And we love you, Jesus, for the fact that one day, because you have overcome the world, we will overcome our tribulations. And you will wipe away every tear, and pain will be no more, and crying will be no more, and death will be no more, and suffering will be no more. Behold, all things will become new in Christ. We praise you for that day, and we ask you that by faith you would make it real to us now. We love you, Lord Jesus. Glorify your name. In your name we pray. Amen.